Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. One is vermouth, which is positively influenced by additions. The other is a conventional industrial wine that has several additions that deter from any notion of terroir. Emily talks about two different adaptations or arrangements of classical works. In both cases, you'll hear the piece as the composer actually wrote them compared to the adapted piece. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Adapted for the better. Adapted for the worse. <laughs> After multiple attempts yeah. of saying good morning, Emily Reese, I've been corrected. Emily's been up for 10 hours. <laughs> she is the morning show host of a uh, radio program here in town. So it's two o'clock. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Happy, happy hour to you, Emily Reese. <laughs> yeah. Is that better? Uh, good day, Joe Mott. Good day. <laughs> Uh, today we're talking about adaptations, both great and maybe not so in our opinions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very much so our opinions. Yours, I think, is a little more black and white as to <laughs> what, which one is better. I may piss off a listener or two, but... That's... Maybe, but I mean, come on. Yeah, yours, I, that's just, you know... Yeah, yours is a, yours is a bit more... Uh... Mine's a little more subjective. There you go. Because, you know, I mean, there's one adaptation of a piece that I really love, um, and then there's one adaptation of a piece that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, but it's still, it's still great. You know, it's just not my cup of tea. Okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear what they are. Um, with regards to on the wine front, we've got a wine that is heavily adapted for what many uh, cocktail aficionados and wine consumers would say for the better, vermouth. We'll be tasting one from the Lombardia region of northern Italy. Um, and then we'll be tasting a wine that is the worst wine hopefully we'll ever have on the program, that we've had so far, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, I won't mention the name of the wine, but when I went to go buy it today at 11 o'clock at our local liquor store here in town, I couldn't believe I had to ask which one I was going to buy of this <laughs> brand because it was so terrible. Heavily mm. manipulated. Yes. So at, adapted for maybe the, the not so great for yeah. our bodies and palates. Therefore, our minds, our spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary. The planet. Oof. I mean, plastic bottle. Not the glass is much better, but where's that going? Let's not go oh, there. Let's not even go there. Let's yeah. start talking <laughs> about adaptations in classical music because thanks to your recommendation, mm-hmm. I was having dinner with a couple lovely people in my life a few nights ago, and we listened to both versions, maybe four movements of each and they were floored how beautiful they both were but were so different and they were yeah. like whoa i never heard these before so i can't wait oh, to cool. have you yeah go well into that's that. a good segue we might as well talk about johann sebastian bach first i will 
hopefully have the opportunity many times in the future of Scores and Pores to talk about this piece we're going to talk about because it's my desert island thing. I was on Reddit the other day and uh, the question was posed, if you were, you know, the end of the world and you come across a library and you find your favorite score of music, what is that piece of music to you? What would you be so excited to find? And for me, it would be the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach, because it's like my favorite. I think it's the most brilliant. I mean, I can go on and on about Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. I can go on and on about a lot of different pieces of music that I think are great. But to me, it's like the smartest construction of notes ever put together on a page, and it's beautiful. And so in my adaptation, Johann Sebastian Bach originally wrote this for keyboard, so at the time, harpsichord. And then in, I Because think, the piano didn't exist, right? Because the piano back didn't during exist that yet. time. Yeah, this was pre-piano days. Uh, and 1700s? 1741 is okay. when this piece was published, which is interesting in and of itself that it got published during Bach's lifetime. A lot of his stuff wasn't. So it was originally written for keyboard, 1741, which is harpsichord. It uh, the adaptation was written, I think, in the 70s. I could not find, for some reason, when Dmitry Sitkovetsky did this arrangement. But I think he did it in the 70s. At the latest, early 80s is when he did this. Uh, a, a composer slash conductor slash violinist named Dmitry Sitkovetsky took the Goldberg variations that Johann Sebastian Bach originally had written for keyboard, and he arranged it for string trio, and he's also arranged it for uh, string trio with a chamber orchestra, which uh, by that I mean chamber orchestra, meaning a smaller orchestra with just strings this time. Sometimes chamber orchestras have wind instruments, wind instruments being those that you know take breath to play, like a flute or a trumpet or something. Uh, but this particular arrangement is for just a string chamber orchestra. And it's just the most beautiful transformation of this piece. Mm-hmm. You know, a piece that's played by two hands can just turn into this, and it just, to me, exemplifies, amplifies the perfection of the piece itself, how beautifully it can transform into such a lovely piece for chamber orchestra. And the other thing I love about the adaptation is it highlights also how fun the piece is, because you'll hear certain lines pass around from, you know, violins to violas to cello to bass to, Good call. to back up and down. And mm-hmm. it's just fun to hear it bounce around because it then gives you mo- a little bit more of a sonic, uh, it, you know, kind of understanding of how fun the keyboardist must be having when, when we, playing. When we talked in our previous episode and a couple episodes before in the crash course, mm-hmm. we were talking about the Baroque era and the busyness that is the bass. Yeah. Can you tell that, when the harpsichord in, because I think we're going to listen to a version from Trevor Pinnock that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, his 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 left hand's probably going all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, can you can you denote that in within the chamber orchestra that, that they're all passing that around, or they're that the bassists are, you know, they're busy? Yes. Okay. Very. Yeah. They they get to do all kinds of fun stuff in the orchestral adaptation of it, and they do stay very very busy. And yeah, we'll we'll get to hear all kinds of examples. But first, you uh, this the Goldberg variations, as the title implies, is a theme and variations. And we've had an episode on this before. But just a quick, quick recap that 
with a theme and variations, we're going to hear a main melody. In this piece, it's called an aria. And then we hear 30 variations. It's a super long piece. We're not going to hear the whole thing today. It's an hour long. So, But let's hear a little bit of the theme because it's beautiful. And we'll just hear a little side by side. I'll play a little harpsichord. And then I'll go ahead and start it at the beginning again with uh, the, I think, I think uh, in the orchestral arrangement I have of it, I believe the string trio plays alone for the aria. You know what I mean? So let's we'll hear uh, violin, viola, cello play. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. All right. So here's, here's a little Trevor Pinnock first. Dmitry Sitkovetsky's version. just sounds like it was could have easily been written for that. Yeah, yep. It's so simple and so beautiful with a very clear soprano line, a very, you know, the bass line's moving about, and then there's this middle alto line played by the viola. It's just beautiful. Yeah, like effortlessly seems like yeah. they're moving around. Yeah, and I'd love to... Um, compare just a couple other movements sure. if, if we could. I think that'd be great. Um, so one of my favorite, you know, as I mentioned, there are 30 variations. 27 of them are in G major. The whole piece is in G major. Three of them are in G minor. Otherwise, it's literally an hour of G major, the same bass line, more or less, repeating over and over and over again. But it never feels like that. I never get sick of this piece. God. <laughs> All right, so here's one of my favorite variations. I have many favorites of the 30, but here's, here's one of them. She has 30 favorites. I have 30 favorite <laughs> variations. This happens to be variation number five on the harpsichord. So there's hand crossing here. See that left hand. Mm-hmm. You know, people could say, if you can dunk a basketball, you're a badass. Yeah. People could say, if you can throw a hundred yard football to the end zone, you're a badass. Trevor Pinnock's a badass. Trevor Pinnock's a badass. <laughs> throw that out there. He's <laughs> one of my favorite people in the world. 
So let's just listen to a little bit of how that transfers into the orchestra version. So this again is variation number five. God, the interplay needs to feel so beautiful with yeah. that many people playing. Yeah. Hear the bass down there? Mm-hmm. Pizzicato in the bass, like. so good it's so 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 good and there's so many great examples of how beautiful of a transformation that became you know you might have noticed that one version they sounded like they're in different keys um and that's if you may recall back to some of our baroque conversations that baroque instruments are tuned to a lower pitch Mm -hmm. than what modern instruments are tuned to and so Sitkovetsky's chamber orchestra that he uh, recorded this with is tuned, I imagine, to 440. And uh, Trevor Pinnock's so, so their G major, their is, G major mm-hmm. sounds different than Trevor Pinnock's G, G major. major. Yep, but so it's all G major. It's just one is tuned to a different G. <laughs> so really, it is and it isn't. Yes. It would be in like the eye of the beholder. Yes, yes, I yes. hear you. Someone with perfect pitch would be probably uh, tortured actually (laughs) tortured by what they're hearing so Let's drink some. Mm, I kind of want to start with the gross stuff so we can end with the good stuff. But well, yeah, and also I think we should start with the bad stuff just because I always like the bad news first. Yes. kind of thing. Also, yes. um, our vermouth does have a small amount of sweetness, so vermouth. I it, the the bad wine is going to taste honestly even worse. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to talk about how wine before I talk about how it's positively adapted into a different beverage that is very close to its main component, wine. Um, I wanted to talk about, because we do on the show tend to favor, uh, when we're showcasing wines, a a bit more of a natural uh, outlook on how to make a wine. And so I think a lot of folks, when they hear not natural wine, they wonder like, well, what does that mean? Because it isn't all wine natural. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, wine is sold to us as this agricultural product of which a lot of times, it, yes, it contains grapes. But if you were to see um, the factories in which a lot of wines are produced, it looks a lot more like a cattle farm from the outside, yeah. meaning like huge silos of stainless steel than it does like you know, romantic cellars and barrels, mm-hmm. people walking around in lab coats kind of thing. And then when you get it, you know, it's can be with a cork, 
but it can also be with a screw cap. Mm -hmm. Not natural wines can come in the form of, I bought a 187 milliliter bottle in a plastic bottle because I didn't want to spend more than $2 on crap. Yeah, it's like one of those little baby bottles. It looks like you're getting it on an airplane, you know? Yes. But you can pay $200 and have not natural wine. Yeah. And so some people are like, well, so what's in wine? Gosh, if it's not just grape juice, what is there? Well, besides yeasts that you can artificially sort of add to your wine to make it ferment, and besides sulfur, there are an incredible amount, up to 60. And I just wanted- Ingredients, yeah. Wow. So I just wanted to give consumers out there um, (laughs) a little, little, I think, breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. So when you're Going in, you're you might be hearing about natural wine in a wine shop, or you know, in a in a you know edition of the newest like what's cute and wine and spirits and stuff. And natural wine now is and everybody's like kind of back of their mind. Mm-hmm. You'll know what is not natural wine. So I would say just a guess because I get this all the time. What percentage of wine is not natural? I have no idea, but my yeah. guess would be eighty percent plus of wine is not natural. Yeah. That's just a Really hot-headed guess, okay? So approved additions for wine. These are just to name a few. Calcium pantothenate. That is a yeast nutrient that you can add before or during fermentation to help your wine, to help the yeast actually perform at a more more standard and efficient rate. Chitosan. Chitosan. Chit? Chitosan. C-H, chit. Chit, chitosan, um, removes Britannomyces or other spoilage organisms. And to me, Britannomyces can be bad, but it can also be uh, can also be good. Is that the mousy one? No. Okay. Britannomyces is not. That is tetrahydropyridine. Okay. Britannomyces kind of smells like can smell like earthiness or kind of like stable, like horsey. Okay. But if it in high quantities, that's bad. But in okay. a, a little bit, you know, it's kind of adding complexity to, to a wine. Mm-hmm. Pyridoxine hydrochloride can be added to your wine. This is a yeast nutrient. Um, and it says online, the amount used must not exceed that of good commercial practice. What does what that, that mean? What does that mean? You tell me. <laughs> uh, so ferrocyanide compounds to remove trace metal from wine and remove objectionable levels of sulfide and mercaptans. Why do you want to do that? Oak chips are approved and particles, oak dust kind of things. You can add mega purple is one that's often, it's used in most. Is that like food coloring? Yep. To make it, to make it look like a lot darker in color. And then something that's, it's abbreviated PVPP. And I'm going to do my best here. Polypyrolidone. Pyro, <laughs> just, I'm just going to call it PVPP. But what's crazy, <laughs> this is to clarify, stabilize, and remove color from red or black wine slash juice. Removing color. So we can just have a whole little chemistry. Let's add wow. some mega purple and then let's add some PVPP yeah. just for good times. Just to balance the color exactly it's the exactly way it was last year. So that it can look rich. That's why they do this, right? They do yeah. this so that they can control everything. Well, and so when people come in and they say, wow, I want a really rich, I want a really heavy, full-bodied, dark wine. We've talked on the show about how that doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. You're kind of saying I want two different 
like what do you want? Because they could be synonymous or not. Mm-hmm. In our minds, we know that dry wine we've heard is better for us. It's not good to like sweet wine and darker, richer is cooler. So yeah, yeah. that people add mega purple to get the color they want. Crazy. And online it does say... And this is all, I mean, this isn't like, I, I do have a little bit of insider scoop, but you can go on the TTB website and see all this stuff, and right? And TTB is? The Tobacco Tax Bureau, Alcohol Tobacco Tax Bureau. Okay. Um, it's fun. You can learn about firearms too. It's like, why is that all governed by the same place? But okay. <laughs> it says, the following list of wine and juice treatments, materials, and processes have been approved as acceptable in good commercial practice under our authority, dot, 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 but have not been subject to subsequent rulemaking. As a result of this administrative approval, industry members do not need to file an application with TTB to use these treatments provided any list limitations are met. So there are some ingredients that say you can't add more than 100 parts per million or Mm -hmm. one gram per liter or something. But then there are are lists that, like I just showed you, items that say you just add whatever you think is good judgment, basically. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to bring a little splash of this. I have, we have a spit cup at hand. <laughs> to scores and pours. To scores and pours. What's it smell like, Jill Mott? I want to know what goes through your head when you smell bad wine. Just lay it on us. That so many people are being had. <laughs> That's what I think about. <laughs> that this is what most people think is red wine. You know, it's just like passable. You know, it doesn't taste like beer and it doesn't taste like vodka. You know, it's like, but mm-hmm. if they if people smelled wine with no ingredients, they're like, wow, it smells fermenty. It smells like grapes. Mm-hmm. It smells like cider. It smell, they use all these like really alive, you know, and yeah. if, I'd be really um, hesitant to say this smells like blackberries because... Poor blackberries. <laughs> what do you think when you smell it? Uh, it smells. Um, and don't don't feel like you've no, been. No, I don't. You know, I mean, does it smell passable? Like you it know, it smells like wine. You know what I mean? Like if I and there are yeasts that can accentuate certain characteristics, so you can add yeasts that will bring out more dark fruit tones or will hide, you know, oak nuances or vanilla nuances. So you can find. Yeast that will give you the esters that you want to display. Now just put it in your mouth. Put it in your mouth. I can't wait to see the look on your face. Ah! That's crazy. It tastes like it's been like open too long or like it, it was, you know, made 10 years ago and they didn't store it right. It just, it tastes, it just doesn't taste right. And it also... Because I spit that out. So what's left on my palate, as you might say, is quite grapey. I mean, I can taste the grape, which is a step in the right direction. Is it grapey? Or is it is it like Jolly Rancher grapey? Yeah. It's not like Yeah. It's not like Or like jello grape. There you go. Yeah, Kool-Aid grape. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Artificial grape. You know, so what I'd love to know, Jill, though, is is there a place you can go to find out what is in that wine? And that is a you know very popularly no. sold. So there's nowhere we could go to see an ingredient list of that wine. No, and that's what there are many people out there that are quite you know they're they're advocates for ingredients labeling on wine. 
saying, hey, if you are making wine and everybody loves it, they mm-hmm. shouldn't care what's in it, right? Right. And, well, you know, you like Snicker bars. doesn't matter if there are 19 ingredients, including high fructose corn syrup. If you like Snickers, yeah. you like Snickers. We already know that. Yeah, yeah. It's on the label. But I think if people knew what was in their wine, <laughs> the the wine industry as we know it would crumble, especially when we're getting into people paying $50, $80 for bottle, like higher, higher oh, end, yeah, what we consider. Because yeah. people would look at this and be like, well, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's super cheap. Super yeah. cheap. But when we're high-end stuff having a, you know, a few having things. super grape in it or whatever the hell it's called. Mega purple. Mega purple. Yeah, that's, that's not. Super grape. That's not. <laughs> mega purple. <laughs> one and the same. Yeah. Um, that's not cool. So, no. um, you know, I, I think that there, honestly, there isn't enough natural wine to for everyone out there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't care. You know, they'd rather right. spend $2 and have this every night than to have, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said... There are people out there that like to like to know where their juice is coming from and mm-hmm. what's in it. I've got like metal aftertaste in yeah. my mouth. Yep, it is metallic mm-hmm. and kind of like you sucked on your finger after you. It's bloody, kind of. Yeah. Like in a, it's like irony, but not in a good way. Yeah. You know Why when are you, you doing it again. I know. You know how when you have a hangnail and then you decide to bite it and yeah, you shouldn't. You should it. just clip it. That's what's happening right here in wine drinking form. You're you're picking the hangnail of wine. I just can't believe that this is what I am, and I'm very fortunate for it because I, I honestly am because it it helps me create perspective for what I'm doing and my own yes. personal, you know, agenda in wine, yeah. and also it leaves room for everybody to just do their thing, drink whatever mm-hmm. they want, make whatever they want. But I just I honestly can't believe this passes for I know it's certain like fast food passing as food, you know, calories. Well, it's, it's calories, but like how nutritious that is passes it? Passes for music. Yeah, and I mean, before I met you and started becoming interested in the world of wine, uh, I wouldn't have, you know, had any idea, obviously, what to buy going in, buying a bottle of wine. I wouldn't know. I probably would look at the natural wine shelf and roll my eyes and be like, oh, fucking hipsters. You totally would. Yeah. but I know now, you, you would say that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I learned, you know, then you learn. My mouth tastes like bile right now. Yeah, yeah. It tastes like the hangover that's about to come. That's the other thing. It's like you can taste a hangover when you <laughs> have a drink of that. You're just like, it's bad news. Whoa. Yeah. So now that I've provided yeah, all and ourselves with a bad adaptation yes. or a, a not so fruitful adaptation. Yes. Oh, God. Pun not intended, but hopefully pun accepted, Dad. Um <laughs> Share, please. Uh, I wish I could just keep talking about the Goldberg variations, but we'll talk about that again, I swear. There's so many cool things about that piece. But the adaptation I chose to highlight that isn't so great, in my opinion, and there are many examples in pop music where, you know, a melody is borrowed or even, you know, appropriately taken and turned into a pop tune. Lots of examples of that. Uh, And this is kind of one of those. This is adapted from a Russian composer, a man named Alexander Borodin, and his opera Prince Igor, which was unfinished when he died, but he had... Mid-1800s, right? He's a Romantic era... Romantic era. Composer? He died in 1887. So let's just do a little 
a cool crash course about Borodin and Russian classical music in that era, which would be, you know, mid-1800s then, right in the middle of the Romantic era and nationalism is uh, becoming a thing. So composers from Norway are writing music that sounds Norwegian and they're using Norwegian folk melodies in their music and Russians are doing the same and French composers are doing the same. You know, it's it's coming, it's becoming more about home and celebrating the sounds of home. And in Russia, there are five composers who are all fairly young who form this little like hangout club and they're all amateur musicians uh, virtually none of them are composers for a living or even teach music or anything. They're all like military guys. Borodin's a chemist. There's this other guy named Modest Mazorksky, who's a military fella. Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who was the youngest. I think he was like 18, but I think he was in the Navy. Uh, Mili Balakirev was kind of the founder of the group. And then one more, a Russian guy named Cesar Kui. So those five formed this coalition of Russian composers called... The five. That's simple. Or the mighty handful, because we have five fingers, right? Well, counting a thumb as a finger, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give you just a little bit of background on Borodin uh, being a chemist, for one thing. Spent most of his time as a chemist, so he, he wrote when he had time to write music. Works on this opera for years, Prince Igor, and there's this piece in the middle of it or, well, it kind of depends on what version of the opera you're using, but there's a piece in it called Palofsian Dances, and it has a beautiful melody in it that's fairly familiar. And that melody got used in a musical play in the 1950s, and got English words put to it, and that... Has, and have nothing to do with... That have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the opera Prince Igor at the time, and of course, 70 years later, right, after the piece has been done, uh, called Stranger in Paradise. Probably the most famous version of Stranger in Paradise is by Tony Bennett. So let's hear Tony Bennett sing it first. Take my hand I'm a stranger in paradise All lost in a wonderland A stranger in paradise When I was listening to this piece, I listened to a version uh, sang in English from Kismet. Where it was actually oh, the the actual the, the actual, from the film yes okay and well from the yeah from the play that was then uh, from the um, <laughs> 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 so I I listened to uh, the Polopsian dances which is um, at the end of Act Two of the opera and it's it's kind of separated into smaller parts mm -hmm. and the second part is where this melody is sort of stolen from right and run away with mm -hmm. and when it was brought over to kismet this very popular play in the 50s musical and, yeah thank you mm -hmm. thank you it was Music a play first and then it was turned into a musical thank yeah. you very much and then it was you know stranger um what is it called stranger in paradise thank you stranger in paradise was um 
you know, one of the one of the main songs between these two lovers. The words have nothing to do with the intonation has nothing to do with the original. So it's basically they just took the melody, mm-hmm. took the fact that it was sung in a certain style, and that's where I'm that's where I'm a little bit like, granted, is it beautiful if it were just on its own? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But if we're talking about it as it relates to Borodin, it's hard for me to say, it's hard for me to pick yeah. that and yeah. say it's equal to Borodin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Borodin, in, in my opinion, the original is definitely the best. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful piece. Borodin in general wrote just stunningly beautiful music, just the best melodies. I mean, the Russians in general were so good. And I mean, they had, yeah, yeah, just great. Borodin is great. So a lot of his music was used to make the music in Kismet. I mean, it wasn't like stolen or whatever. It's just, that's just what they did. But the originals are always better. I think when it comes to things like this, where they're taking it completely away from its intent, like like when Dmitry Sitkovetsky adapted Bach's Goldberg variations, he was still staying true to the piece. And in this situation, that's not what's going on, and they're not even trying to. You know, they're just taking a bunch of melodies that someone else wrote, and they had done this before in a different musical. Uh, they're taking all these melodies that somebody else wrote and and making new music out of it that has literally nothing to do with what came before it. Now Borodin, now Borodin would have been on board with that. He kind of championed the idea of absolute music, meaning that music didn't mean anything. To oversimplify it, uh, but still, it it's it's an interesting thing to do with that melody to take it into that context. Yeah, I mean, take an ancient. Russian epic called the Lay of Igor's Host, and then make that into an opera, and then make it into a musical. Yeah, in English. <laughs> like I've just poured myself some vermouth to get through these next couple versions, <laughs> which I adore with twenty-five percent of my being. Take my hand. I'm a stranger in paradise. All lost in a wonderland A stranger in paradise If I stand starry And so just a quick tidbit too when you're if you're looking this up to compare and contrast um, the Pelopsian dances what's what's being kind of brought over to um, stranger in paradise is an actual the second part, which is called the gliding dance of the maidens. And what's interesting for me to hear is if you if you go online, there are several sources where you can read obviously the Russian translated into English and there are these like slaves that are singing and then there are you know there's like Khan who's singing and there's like it's just very it's not at all a romantic setting it's very dramatic it's very sad mm-hmm. um, it, and it actually is setting up uh, 
women being offered to men, you know, just like <laughs> not about love and not about. <laughs> so when when you hear like whenever I hear "Stranger in Paradise" in in English, if yes, of course you hear it on its own. It's be- but if you're thinking you're listening to melody, you're like, this is not what <laughs> it should be sung about. Yeah, what this is so, about at all? I don't know. But Borodin, wonderful composer. Yeah, dive dive into some Borodin in your free time because it's well worth it. Yeah, dive into some vermouth too. Let's dive into that. You vermouth can even make it at home in one day. Love that. If you Go on. if you so feel the need, uh, it's of course adapted uh, depending on how you you know in a way that isn't quite commercial. Now I will don't say of course because I did not have any idea what vermouth was until 2019. Okay, so vermouth. No idea. Vermouth is an aromatized. To put it just succinctly, aromatized, meaning it's being flavored with, it's uh, being aromatically scented with Mm -hmm. things, and it's fortified, meaning there's some sort of stronger alcohol added to it to fortify it. Usually, vermouth is fortified with a neutral grape spirit of some sort. Sometimes it can be locally made, you know, close to the area where the, the... place it's making vermouth is. Sometimes it can be from far afield. Um, And it's flavored with a bunch of different citrus peel, spices, herbs, seeds, barks, you name it. You know, it's, that's very proprietary when you're dealing with um, well-known vermouth houses. And then also small outfits like uh, the one we're going to taste from Lombardia. Um, They tell quite a bit online. They'll like list what's in their what's in their vermouth, but they don't, they're not telling you everything and they're not <laughs> surely not telling you quantities, you know, cause that's mm-hmm. what makes vermouth so different one from the next. So, uh, vermouth in my opinion is a really cool adaptation, uh, of wine, a manipulated wine, because honestly it's inception likely came from, um, well, just where absinthe came from. It was like wormwood was a, was a medicinal and it was a way to get medicine into people by making it taste good. So you flavored it to get wormwood that would Mm -hmm. help with certain intestinal digestive issues. Um, And vermouth is obviously a great addition to cocktails, but on its own um, in small amounts, it's a really beautiful aperitif like before dinner. It's like one of my favorite aperitifs to have. Its beginnings were likely in the late 18th century in northern Italy, close to Turin, which is um, very close to Lake Como area. But they think that wines, adulterated wines like this could have been around since the first or second millennia Mm. before Christ. So nobody's really certain um, when we go that far back. But I brought a really cool producer that they're – they're, they're called Hacienda Agricola Pianora, so located in northern – close to the spiritual home of Vermouth. And – I'd just like you to smell it before I tell you what's in it. And yeah, what do you think? It's called Wermut, which comes from the old German word for vermouth. Um, Well, actually, it comes from German word is Wermut, and that became Frenchified um, into Vermut or Vermouth, and that's where we get the name today. And this is called Wermut Herborista. It smells like pickles a little bit. Does it smell like pickles or does it smell like what is put into pickles to yeah. make them smell like pickles? Yeah. So like allspice, pickling spices kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I get like a really strong like cassia bark, like cinnamon stick. Not like ground cinnamon, but like cinnamon stick. Oh. I get like like 
full-on, like, cloves. Something sandalwoody or cedary. It's very yummy. And do you notice how sweet it is? Yeah. It has to be bitter or else it would just be sweet and boring. You'd have the sweet and the acidity, but that bitterness really cuts that. And yeah. before dinner, this just like opens up the appetite. It's like, a, and you could put a little splash of sparkling water in there. Hashtag Jill's summer is what I want to <laughs> say about that. So what's cool about this producer is they're using all organic grapes from their estate and they're how you make vermouth. People make it in different ways. They'll Sometimes they'll steep their herbs and their barks into the f- neutral grape spirit. Sometimes they'll steep it into the wine and then add the spirit. Something like the order is very different depending okay. on the house or if you're making it at home. In in this instance, they're using to color it. So this is not back sweetened with any, a lot of times um, bad quality vermouths are back sweetened with like, um, and they'll use a lot of coloring agents um, and they'll back sweeten it with like, it's called rectified concentrated grape must. You're basically boiling down grape juice until you get something really sweet to to sweeten. Okay. This is actually sweetened with just like straight up cane sugar. That's it. And then they're getting the color. This is coming from their Cabernet and their Merlot. So the color is is all natural, which is really beautiful. It's very dark. Very dark, mm-hmm. yeah. And they're spiking it with the following things, which is so cool. Quite a list of ingredients, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. Elderflower. There's calamo. Um, there's three different types of artemisia, which th- that's the genus of the wormwood plant. So wormwood is, of course, one of the ingredients. Um, two of them, they say, are local, which normally when you're making a wormwood, a lot of what you're adding is not local. Or excuse me, when you're adding herbs to make a vermouth. So it's really cool that... Pianoras oh, yeah. doing some exotic ingredients, but a lot of them are local. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using uh, citrine sandalwood. They're using uh, China calisaya, which is the um, chinchona or chinchona, which is where quinine comes from. For those oh. of you who like tonic, gin and yeah. tonics, that's one of the bittering agents here. Yeah, and they're using no fragrances or essences of any kind, which is very common in, in like cheap vermouth. So it's just a really interesting, unfortunately very, very rare vermouth. It's delicious. And adapted from wine in perhaps the right way. Yeah, I agree. Cheers. Cheers. So to wrap up, what would you say about adaptations in classical music for for better or kind of better? There are thousands of examples, seriously. I mean, think about little Timmy playing you know, tenor saxophone in sixth grade, little Timmy needs to learn the music of dot, 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 fill in the blank. So there's all kinds of fun, weird arrangements of classical music that have made their way into society, you know. And there are some really great, great ones. And there are some that, eh, not so great. And uh, the 20th century was had lots of examples of, you know, <laughs> Rachmaninoff and Beethoven and Bach and all, just all kinds of uh, composers' melodies being borrowed for pop music and musicals and Kismet, the musical. You know, it's it's fun, it's fine, and it's fun. And if that gets somebody into Borodin, then yes, yeah, listen to Kismet all day. 
So yeah. Just don't listen to the synth jazz version of Stranger in Paradise that I listen to because you'll just want to <laughs> omit any tracing back to boarding and just go to him. Just all roads lead to boarding. Um, so for you, uh, you know, really for you, you would just prefer people would not adapt wine if they're going to leave it as a wine, but if they're going to adapt it and make it into something like vermouth and do it right, you're on board? Sure. Or vinegar. Or vinegar. <laughs> Let yeah. it go. Yeah. Let it go to vinegar. Yeah. If it's if something's really good, mm-hmm. why are you going to put a lot of stuff in it? Yeah. You know, like the best bread. Best bread doesn't need butter or anything. It just is so good. Yeah. And why is wine any different? Yet... You know, this is vermouth is a very historical thing um, and serves a purpose other than, you know, you're not drinking three glasses of vermouth with your dinner, your long dinner with friends. You know, your vermouth has a specific purpose. And um, I think that it's obviously a very, it's a very personal opinion, but a, a great adaptation of wine uh, in the right instance. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing it today. I know it was a rare thing, and I'm appreciative that we got the chance to taste something so delish. To scores and pours, and uh, thanks to Bar Brava and Selection Masal for <laughs> this Wermut Herborista. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpores and Instagram at scoresandpores. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpores. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pores is a production of Jude Media, Inc.